listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Just a short while ago, a flight from Japan was scheduled to touch down at Kona International Airport. Big Island Mayor Mitch Roth and Ross Birch from the Island of Hawaii's Visitors Bureau and others were on board to welcome Japanese passengers back to Hawaii. It's the first time since the shutdown that restrictions are being lifted and we can welcome tourists from Japan as flights prepare to resume on a regular schedule. First impressions are important. Today we talk about the design of the new processing center so that we are proud, not embarrassed, about the conditions of our airports. Our international visitors will be processed for the first time through the Federal Inspection Service Building at the Ellison Onizuka Kona International Airport. KYA Design Group's Carol Toriga says it's received the highest energy efficiency certification, or what's referred to as LEED Gold. We talked to Ross Higashi, Airports Division Deputy Director, about the push to modernize our facilities. Customs and Border Patrol now require state-of-the-art biometrics and other advances that are included in the new center. The, the new FIS facility was designed and completed ahead of schedule in September of 2021. And this is pretty important. Not only does it allow direct flights to Kona from foreign destination, but it serves as a second port of entry should an unforeseen circumstance occur in Honolulu. So we're pleased and elated. We're excited to welcome back Japan Airlines as the first international carrier uh, to utilize the, this new $60 million Kona FIS. And so, Carol, jump in here. You know, what was it like when you were looking at designing a space, you know, because you had to meet certain requirements? I think the significance of the facility is it actually serves as a border, which people don't realize that it really is a border into our country. And therefore, there are strict design guidelines and processes required for this border protection. It's a really unique functional mandate at specific airports, and we were very pleased to participate and to qualify uh, because of what Ross had said and, and our firm was part of this too as well. We worked very, very closely with CBP, and it was a very efficient and successful partnership with them to, re- to get this facility opened in time. As Ross stated, there was a time deadline for us, and, you know, we met that in with all the partners involved. So that's something that was quite an accomplishment. So talk about the specifics. I mean, what makes it different just, you know, from another facility? For instance, the existing facility is a tent that's totally enclosed. And part of that is because of the protection of the type of facility and the activities that happen within the FIS. So the challenge was to do a unique design where we protect the process while also having an open, welcoming architectural feeling to the facility so that as passengers deplane, it's something that welcomes them to Kona and to the United States. And we did this by creating a a core that's very enclosed with all of your technical equipment and, you know, things like detention centers. There's all kinds of highly classified units in there that we can't expose photographs of or really speak to, but there's a, a core that we had to design. And from this core, we had designed the ability for them to have a panoramic view of the whole facility that surrounds the core. And so I think the unique design was to, first of all, establish that core and to design the um, surround so that we could open it up to daylight to the views of the airfield, as well as to passengers as they deplane, and they can actually see a beautiful facility from the exterior as well. Ross, when it comes to you know efficiency at the airport, I mean, what are you folks looking at? Getting the passengers in and out to wherever they need to go uh, as far as their destination, which is the hotel and the beaches, and so that they can tour the islands as soon as possible. But let me tell you, this facility that was designed and constructed, I would say in the United States, it's probably the most efficient, well-built, I want to say it's a state-of-the-art customs border uh, protection facility. It's a, a facility that any officer of the CBP would be willing to work at. It's very, very spacious. Uh, it's highly tech. There's a lot of technological infrastructure built in there. Well, you know, I just remember years ago, you know, traveling and, and seeing how a border patrol, you know, operates, you know, in places like, you know, Canada or, or going to, to to China, you know, and, and seeing some of the spectacular construction that was going on over there. And then just wondering, gosh, you know, when will Hawaii, you know, get its turn at getting updated? 
and and we are in you know the middle of this modernization project for our airports. Right, we're turning towards. Um, and in fact, we've already changed to the facial recognition as well, meaning the CBP has. So is that part of this facility? Yes. I don't know if you remember, but they used to have the um, fingerprint machine, right, that you had to put your hand on. Yes. But that all got replaced with uh, facial recognition. So you go straight up to your office, be able to, to read you through your, your face. And so as we look to this new facility being uh, open, I mean, uh, uh, do you know what the schedule is going to be like? Uh, you know, this first plane will touch down. Uh, I don't know how many passengers on board. As far as I'm concerned, I expect more flights to start fly into Kona and to Honolulu only you know, once the uh, restrictions get lifted on the, the pandemic. Well, the Big Island's uh, economy certainly uh, could use a, a lift. I think we've worked very closely with the community as well, and they're very excited. It'll be air-conditioned, which will be, you know, part of the whole modernization and the new look for Kona. It's a divergence from the hut, but it complements it in material. But it's, you know, we use more modernized materials, so there's state-of-the-art protective glass and technology. The finishes are perfect for Kona and the weathering there. You know, that will have longevity and a lifespan cycle that will be good for the state. So, you know, in many ways, it's, it's new, but it's also very, very exciting. There's a big, big sign, KOA, the call, call letters for Kona, that is from floor to ceiling. It supports a walkway. It's the first thing you see as you're um, upon approach the airport from, from the plane, and then it's supporting a canopy that protects people as they deplane and walk into the facility, and it creates a lanai, a feeling of a lanai that encompasses the building. And on the back side of that, it also is a lanai for the passengers as they wait for their tour buses, which is a really nice uh, feature. And we feel it will be very welcoming to guests when they come to Kona. And one more thing to add to that, uh, we built an adjacent old room next to that facility. So for the passengers that when they're departing, it's actually an enclosed air-conditioned hold room. So that can be used not only for international flights departing from Kona, but also for other flights. It could be inner island. I, I, I used that, that whole room uh, last week uh, when I departed from Kona back to Honolulu. So it's another feature that um, no longer, you know, trying to move away from that open air thing that we have in Kona, but um, some people like it. But we do have in, in a closed air-conditioned hold room now, so added to uh, the Kona airport. Well, I'm one of those that really like the Kona airport. I, lo- I love the open air, so uh, yeah. th- that will always have a spot in my heart. Uh, yeah. But yeah, for comfort, at least you have that option. And we did do the design of the original one as well, and it certainly, you know, stands for Kona, and it has a place that's in everyone's hearts. We just need some of these facilities that, in case of emergency or, you know, with bad weather, they have a room that they can house people and protect ter- travelers. Right, a backup, a different, another option. Correct. And, Ross, you know, uh, I, I just uh, went through the new concourse over there at the Honolulu International Airport, and, and I was impressed. It was very welcoming. Yes, and TYA was also the designer, and so Phelps was the uh, contractor, and they both did an excellent job. Everybody raves about how modernized that airport is. I think what makes that terminal more appealing is the fact that they have very high ceilings in there, and it's also silver lead. We're trying to achieve gold lead, meaning the uh, energy efficiency. Uh, the design was to have air-conditioned air blown from the middle of the facility instead of coming down from the ceiling because all hot air goes to the top. But um, it's just the way that the light shafts and it's very bright in there. I like bright facilities. I don't like dim facilities and it's very spacious. So it's built right. The, the next plan is to modernize the rest of the terminals at Honolulu to mimic the architecture and design in Malka Concourse. You talked about the technological ad- advances in, in these facilities and you know I know there was a much made when I think it was the Denver airport, you know, they had that new baggage system, but then they also ran into some problems, mechanical problems that that broke down. But how equipped are we to deal with this, with the high-tech equipment at our facilities? I mean, do we have the the manpower here to fix it right away? Yeah, we have maintenance contractors, but in fact, um, you know, our 
everything that you see is what you see as a passenger. You don't really see what goes behind the scenes. So right now we are replacing our baggage handling systems at the Honolulu Airport. It was also replacing the ones at the Honolulu uh, Airport as well, the two most utilized airports. And then, of course, in Kona, we've um, excavated about 30 feet down into the lava rock where we got baggage being checked in in front of the airport. It goes under the airport uh, to the sterile side of uh, Kona Airport, where it um, then goes to the USDA and TSA screening. So a lot of changes as far as baggage and um, how things are handled at the, those three airports. Do we have the bugs worked out? I mean, I know it's been sitting for a while. Have we been able to, you know, run things through? Yeah, we don't have any bugs that I know of. Okay. <laughs> Do you know, Carol? <laughs> well, the TSA, you know, has stringent tests. We, we go through a series of tests before we're able to open it to the public. So, it, you know, they've, all of them have passed well. Right. And it, yes, they should be functioning beautifully. The, the other thing, Catherine, that we didn't have before is the ability to have more of these facilities. So there's redundancy. And as long as you have that backup, things will happen once in a while, right, over wear and tear or just because they're mechanical, but the redundancy that we have will alleviate, you know, some of the delays that occur when catastrophes happen. I don't know, anything else you want to say just about, you know, design? I mean, I'm big on good design. Well, I think one of the things that when I stepped into this position, everybody would complain and about the restrooms at our airports. They were just dingy and old and needed to be renovated. That was something I, I continued to push to get done. And if you walk around our airport, most of the restrooms you can see have been renovated. They're all modernized and they have the same look. So I'm proud of the fact that it's done towards the end of my term, which ends uh, on December 5th. So that's a, an accomplishment of our team and things to get done at the airport. Oh, the other thing that we got done was rent a car facility in Honolulu. And then things that may go unnoticed is the uh, pedestrian bridges. Mm-hmm. KYA also helped with the design on that, but um, those needed to be redone. There's three of them, and it was a feat to get them replaced because they connect the employee or the visitor parking lot to the terminal. Those structures were starting to corrode, so it was a safety issue. So those uh, structures, bridges were all placed as well. One thing I just wanted to say before we close mm-hmm. is both Kona FIS and the Malka Terminal recently received a LEED Gold certification. That was quite an accomplishment. I believe in in the case of Malka, they're only it's one of eight in the nation to receive gold certification. It's difficult for you know airport facilities are quite different, and so there aren't very many facilities that are able to. If I can add one more thing, sure. so what do we look forward to since we finished these projects is that in Kahului Airport, we're redoing the uh, gates 1 through 15. Mm-hmm. We're modernizing it and we're expanding the size of the hold rooms, closing the open air walkways. And in Honolulu, we're in the design stage of, again, mimicking or renovating, modernizing Terminal 2 concourses and hold rooms. They're all dated and need to be uh, modernized as well. Carol, is your firm doing any other of the uh, other airports? Well, yes, we, we're very fortunate, and we continue to help with Kona and mm-hmm. some work on Maui. As okay. um, Ross mentioned, there's some other projects that they have in the queue, as well as Honolulu. So there's some exciting things that are going to be happening in in all of the air, uh, airports across the state, oh. and we're really happy to be a part of it. That was KYA Design Group's Carol Torrigo and Ross Higashi, the state's airport's administrator, talking about the brand-new state-of-the-art Federal Inspection Border Facility in Kona, which is welcoming international passengers uh, from Japan. Uh, They touched down this morning for the first time since the pandemic shutdown. listening to The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okawa, oahu, omoloka'i. 
ulana umau for today's backyard quiz, we're thinking about a seabird on the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. The creature is graceful at sea, clumsy on land, and has particular difficulty with takeoffs and landings. Once in flight, though, it's something to see, especially when it's diving deep below the ocean surface for squid or schooling for fish that are its prey. This bird is about 28 inches in length with a wingspan of more than 36 inches and either white or brown plumage. It breeds on islands in most tropical oceans but has been known to stray far from its regular habitat. Its most distinctive uh, features are its uh, pale blue bill and its brightly colored webbed feet. It's those petal extremities that give it its name and if you saw one, you know exactly why it has its somewhat unflattering name. So for today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of this bird? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com. Sherry Menor McNamara has spent more than a decade and a half working with lawmakers. Now she has her sights set on the lieutenant governor's seat. She recently stepped back from her job as head of the Hawaii Chamber of Commerce. She hopes her business background and experience working in the legislative halls will propel her into elected office. For me, I know there are a couple of polls that came out that had us in a single-digit percentage, but that does not stop us from continuing to push forward to the finish line because it obviously shows there's a huge undecided, almost half of undecided voters. And even when ads are playing since April, we didn't start ours until July. But even then, with all the different ads, it's still a huge undecided. So. The next two weeks are going to be critical to reach out to voters across the islands. What do you think you bring to the table compared to some of the other front runners in this race who might have more legislative experience? Well, first, I'm not a career politician. With that said, I have 16 years of experience working with the legislature due to my role as president and CEO of the Chamber of Commerce Hawaii. Uh, that represents more than 2,000 businesses across the islands that employ more than 200,000 employees. So I do have that experience working with the legislature, with the administration, and all levels of government. And having those relationships will help in the position of lieutenant governor. Two, I'm the only candidate that brings that statewide business economic perspective to work hand-in-hand with the governor to put forth an agenda that will address economic recovery. Three, I am the only candidate that is from the neighbor island, so I understand how and what the concerns are of the neighbor islands. And being raised in Hilo, I lived through it where a lot of policies tend to be more Oahu-centric. And as I traveled across the islands during this campaign trail, that was one of the main concerns about uh, having two Oahu-centric policies and the neighbor islands being ignored. So those are some of the main areas where I feel I'm different from the other candidates. And what has been the biggest challenge, you know, when it comes to fundraising and getting your message out? I don't have that campaign chest that many of the politicians have been able to build upon over the years because money's raised during their terms as politicians, as legislators or council persons. They can keep that money. And for some years, they didn't have a race. They didn't have to spend as much. So we, as a grassroots campaign, started from zero dollars. Uh, So it's building up that campaign that the other candidates already had. But with that said, you know, for us, we always wanted to focus on the grassroots campaign, going to the people, listening to them, meeting in garages or 
being at events or having meet and greets organized for us. That's the way we want to reach the people and earn the votes of the people. We've been reading a lot about public corruption cases. You know, we've got scandals on the county level as well as, uh, you know, at the state legislature. And when you were lobbying the lawmakers over the many years, I mean, what was your reaction when you heard about Senator Kalani English and Representative Ty Cullen when they were named in that scandal? Definitely shocked because they are elected officials and they are held at the highest standards. And to find out, you know, about this corruption has definitely, I think, shocked the entire arena, the legislative arena. And that's why it's important to restore trust in government. And it's also important to implement policies in place to prevent this type of corruption. And I know they have been looking at bills, but we saw the survey that came out recently, our advertiser that said not enough has been done to pass policies. To address corruption. And so that's why it's going to be critical as we move forward to continue to push this effort to clean up the dirty politics, to restore trust in government. And part of it is to bring in, elect new people to government. And where do you stand on holding fundraisers during the legislative session? Fundraisers should not be held during the legislative session or any type of fundraising. So not only events, but phone calls or commitments, et cetera. Any type of fundraising should be banned during the legislative session. I also agree with term limit as well as looking into a use it or lose it. As I mentioned before, many have been able to build up these campaign checks over the years. And to have that much money may deter some qualified candidates to run because of that. So I feel that that's another area we could look at. And definitely, again, always look at legislation to avoid this type of activity, corruption. We've seen a number of, I guess, attack ads this political season, including, you know, in the lieutenant governor's race. Uh, what are your thoughts on what you're seeing on the air? For us, it's always keeping it clean and always keeping it positive. And that's how our ads have been. And for that, you know, that's the lane that we're going to take. I did happen to see you out at Blaisdell Park. There was an event that, uh, you know, one group was billing as a victory party for the Marcus Duterte ticket. And I know that there was a group, it was the, I think, the Worldwide Leaders Alliance that was helping to host that. Um, But what were your thoughts appearing at an event like that, you know, for folks who might be anti-Marcos? Well, for me, one, my grandparents came from Ilocos Norte, from Lawag City specifically, and there's a huge population here from that area. So for me to be there to support my supporters and to also be there because that's where my grandparents came from and that's where Bong Bong was from. And that's why I was there, to be present, to meet people and to hear their concerns and make a present. What would you say to people who thought maybe that with Ferdinand Marcos Sr.'s human rights record that maybe that was not a good thing? Well, obviously, I would. that's something that I would, the record I would be against, obviously. Mm-hmm. Bong is a son, but his platform is different. And for me, it's always, it's important for me to hear other people's issues, other different perspectives, different ideas, different concerns. So just because I was there, that does not prevent me to listen to everyone's input and perspective. And that's the kind of lieutenant governor I want to be, is to go out there and listen. We saw Ben Cayetano use that office as a way to create A+, you know, the after-school program. We've watched Josh Green use that during COVID, you know, with his health background. So what would you bring to the table as lieutenant governor with your um, background with the chamber? is one is to partner with the governor to ensure that the governor is successful in pushing a collective inclusive agenda that addresses the many challenges we have today so definitely that will be the most important is to have a good solid working relationship with the governor Two, because i am the president of the chamber of commerce and work with small businesses across the islands for the past 16 years. I have a good pulse of what's going on out there in our economy and in our communities. So that's another area that I would like to lead is to focus on the economic recovery plan. And if the governor allows us to do that, that's an area that I would like to cover. Strengthen our educational workforce development initiative, because as we move forward, we need a prepared workforce. 
and that means working with high school students and working with a population that may pivot to different types of jobs. Vocational training is going to be critical to that. So I want to be involved in that. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm the only candidate from the neighbor islands. So it's going to be important for me to serve as that liaison between the neighbor islands and to the governor and ensuring that I'm out there listening to going out there into the communities across the islands, listening to the people and bring that information back to the governor. Because as lieutenant governor, I will be the voice of the people because that's what I'm being elected for. As a first-time candidate, we don't have a political machine behind us, the endorsements, and other type of support and resources that the other candidates have. But again, we've always advocated that our campaign is about having a fresh start, bringing new voices to the table, and really making this a grassroots campaign. And I'm proud of our team. I'm proud of all the people that have come out to support us. I'm very humbled by their support to continue that momentum. And we're going to continue to push to the very end until the primary because, again, it's undecided, Mm -hmm. almost half undecided. And so many are still contemplating which candidate they want to go with. And so we're going to push really hard and continue to go across the island and ensure that we are that grassroots candidate. That was Democratic Lieutenant Governor candidate Sherry Menor McNamara talking to us about her bid for political office. For more election coverage and information on candidates, check out the election page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil Beach Reality Check today looks at the campaign being mounted in the 2nd Congressional District. Reporter Nick Ruby has the story. Good morning, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. Yes. So your story today is about a lot of the uh, special interest outside money that's uh, being thrown at this race. Yeah, so this race uh, is um, being waged mostly in the Democratic primary between uh, former state Senator Jill Takuda and uh, state representative Patrick Bronco, who is a relative newcomer to Hawaii politics, whereas Takuda, she's been around for a while, has run a couple of statewide campaigns, uh, was in some high-profile positions within the state legislature, including uh, as the chair of the Ways and Means Committee. Um, now, what we've seen in this race is a recent influx of a lot of special interest money coming from the mainland, particularly groups uh, here in Washington, D.C., like Vote Vets, Mainstream Democrats, which backs moderate candidates, um, and a couple of cryptocurrency companies, as well as the, uh, uh, the political arm of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And all of these groups uh, have sort of combined forces to throw money at uh, Patrick Bronco and uh, to try to get him to win this seat. Um, And, and, you know, they've run a number of, uh, some of the groups have run some negative attack ads uh, going after Takuda. Others have just tried to boost Bronco's name recognition. And so that's a lot of money for us to be seeing that is almost seemingly out of nowhere. Yeah, and and I think probably these negative ads, uh, you know, against uh, Takuda, uh, I think surprised a lot of people. Well, I think this has been surprising because, again, um, Patrick Bronco is a relative newcomer to politics, so he doesn't, uh, uh, you know, he doesn't have a lot of name recognition in the islands, at least not yet. He's only been in the legislature uh, for one term. He's completing his first term before that. He worked for the U.S. State Department as a diplomat, but we still don't know really a lot about him other than what he's uh, been saying. So these groups have tried, have, have basically jumped into this race to back him and are trying to build his name ID. And quite frankly, um, there are some who think uh, he actually has a shot of pulling off an upset here. Because uh, Joel Takuda, uh, polling has shown, has been the front runner in this race with about 30% or so of um, 
uh, of uh, voters supporting her, whereas Bronco is in the single digits or uh, uh, maybe around 6%. But there's still about 60% of voters who said that they were undecided on this race. So uh, some of the political consultants and, in fact, at least one of the, uh, the people uh, with, with, this, with these PACs that are supporting Bronco said, you know what? This is a gamble that could pay off. Uh, we can flood the airwaves in Hawaii without having to spend a lot of money to try to move the needle in Bronco's direction because there are so many undecided voters. We'll talk about this thing called red boxing uh, because I was kind of surprised when I saw some of the, the pro-Bronco uh, ads. They seem pretty slick. And I just wondered, like, gosh, where did they get all that video and those pictures? Uh, and right. it was right on his website. That's right. So red boxing is uh, it's a slight, slightly new phenomenon that we're seeing in <clears throat> politics. And it's where candidates are posting talking points and images and uh, B-roll footage on their websites with, uh, and in some cases, and <clears throat> particularly in Bronco's case, with targeted demographics um, saying, you know, this message might resonate with Native Hawaiians on Maui and the Big Island. And essentially what it is, it's a way for candidates to avoid breaking uh, laws that prohibit coordination between cam uh, candidate campaigns and super PACs. And, you know, there are some who say that, quite frankly, this red boxing uh, is still illegal. But the problem is, is the FEC is not enforcing it because the FEC is sort of a uh, toothless agency right now because it is perpetually deadlocked. Uh, with a 4-4 split on its board between uh, Republicans and Democrats, which means pretty much nothing happens. Yeah, well, it, it is stunning when you think that it's kind of a wink-wink, you know, shameless, like, hey, if anybody wants to help me, here's, you know, what I think you should do, and here's the video. <laughs> right, well, and, you know, I interviewed somebody from the Campaign Legal Center, which is one of these watchdog organizations in Washington that tracks money, in politics, and they reviewed Bronco's website, and they said what he is doing is both brazen and egregious. Yeah, well, interesting to see uh, if it works or if voters uh, will, uh, you know, not look uh, kindly on this. But um, all right, but thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Nick Gruby reporting uh, out of D.C. for today's reality check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the upcoming exhibition, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening. Learn more about how to be a part of this immersive, collaborative celebration of flowers at honolulumuseum.org. Across North America every year, migratory monarch butterflies travel thousands of miles. Imagine the fact that these butterflies migrate to Mexico. How does it something that weighs about half a gram manage to do what you can't do? The monarch butterfly is now endangered, but they can be saved. Find out how on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Native Hawaiians marched from Iolani Palace to Honolulu Hala yesterday to cast their votes on the first day the walk-in service centers were open. Several organizations, including the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement and the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, waved signs to bring attention to the election and to flex their political muscle. Howie Burgess is the Director of Community Relations at Kamehameha Schools. She attended yesterday's event along with several of her students. We are encouraging our students who are of voting age, encouraging our people who are of voting age to come out and vote. Vote according to your values. Vote, vote for the people whose values reflect what you want to see on this land, what you want to see in our waters, what you want to see in our classrooms, and what you want to see in every government building. 
For Burgess, the election season isn't just about the future of Hawaii. It's also about the young people she works with. She makes sure her students stay involved and informed. The reason why Kamehameha Schools is out here is because we have this saying. It's it's um, and that saying means nurture the children and the people will thrive. And so we're here to ensure that the next generation, our students, the keiki, are engaging. We want to make sure that they are aware of the importance of their voice because they of course, as we all know, they're the future. They are the next leaders. And Burgess's message hasn't been lost on her students. Joshua Ching just graduated from Kamehameha Schools Kapalama this year, and he's ready for his first election. I am beyond excited to actually fill out a ballot and cast it. Land and water rights, um, public safety, public health, our criminal justice system. I think those are all things to keep in mind, especially when they're impacting our youth, because those are the people who aren't able to vote, but need your votes in order to get the legislators into office who will keep those as their priorities. And Ching's not the only one itching to vote. We talked to uh, Addis Bilai and Star Wu. Both are sophomores at Kamehameha Kapalama. They're too young to vote, but that hasn't stopped them from using their voices. We asked them why they came out to Honolulu Hale. Here's Addis. Because it's so important for Opio voices to be heard. You know, even though we cannot vote, the, the impact of the vote and the decisions that lawmakers make will still impact us and we will still have to face the consequences of their actions. So it's important that they hear our voice. Even if we cannot vote for them, they need to know that we are here. The land, the water, those two things were huge to the Hawaiian people and back in the day. And even now, it should be a huge issue that we should talk about inside of our legislature, but also the education of young Hawaiian children and what they will grow up with their values. What values are we going to teach them? I think we have to talk more about that as well. And once again, the walk-in ballot service centers are open across the state. But remember, the locations are limited. Common Cause tells us there's only uh, one on Maui and two on the Big Island. Officials are encouraging people not to wait until the last minute. You can mail your ballot or you could head out to one of the ballot service centers. There are 32 drop boxes across the state. You can find more information uh, through uh, our voter guide at hawaiipublicradio.org. Today's Backyard Quiz, we tested your knowledge about a part-time resident of the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. It's a seabird that breeds on land but spends most of its life at sea. It feeds on small fish or squid that gather in groups near the surface, but it's also capable of diving deep to catch its prey. Breeding pairs stay together for years, with males and females taking turn caring for eggs, which are laid one at a time. They've got a colorful mating dance in which the male sky points, aiming his beak straight upward. They are the most abundant of these types of birds in our islands, and because they have no natural predators on the nesting islands, they show no fear of humans. The first part of their name is inspired by its characteristic pinkish red feet. And their naivete is likely the reason for the second part of their name, believed to derive from the Spanish word for stupid. In Latin, it's sula sula. But in English, it's the red-footed booby, which is the answer we were looking for. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, I'll send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And today's winner is Michelle from Kaneohe. On the next Fresh Air, how the opioid industry resembled a drug cartel. We talk with Washington Post reporter Scott Hyam, co-author of the new book, American Cartel. Based in part on formerly confidential documents, the book is filled with revelations about the manufacturers, distributors, pill mills, and pharmacies behind the opioid epidemic. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point.
Democrats' hopes of passing a federal climate package to the U.S. Senate were all but lost last week when Democratic uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia uh, blocked his party's own proposal, citing concerns of inflation. Uh, but many senators, including Brian Schatz of Hawaii, refuted claims that the spending bill would be inflationary. Here's Schatz. Well, look, I, I understand um, people are paying more than they've ever paid for almost everything, and it's super painful for people in Hawaii who always pay more for energy, for rent or a mortgage, uh, for groceries, um, for gasoline. And so um, I think we all have to try to fight to lower people's costs. But the simple fact is this bill was not inflationary. There are a number of independent uh, groups of economists that do the kind of analysis that gives us a window into whether or not a bill is likely to cause inflation. And all of them have been unanimous that the clean energy investments that we were contemplating uh, would not increase um, the cost of either energy or anything else. Look, if you're in the business of trying to take action on climate change, you have to very quickly dust yourself off and get right back in the fight. And that's what we did. You know, I had a moment where I was, uh, I was angry, I was disappointed, um, I was frustrated, but I only let, let that last for a couple of hours because, you know, the future uh, of the state of Hawaii, the future of the planet, the future for many generations depends on us staying in this fight. And stay in the fight they did. Uh, Senator Manchin changed his tune last Wednesday, breathing life back into a climate deal that would spend hundreds of billions of dollars on emissions reductions and renewable energy infrastructure. The conversation, Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Melissa Miyashiro, executive director of the Blue Planet Foundation, about what this package could mean for climate efforts in Hawaii. Uh, it's expected to be voted on this week. It was certainly a surprise, but a welcome and needed one. Mm. Can we break down a little bit more about this? It's supposed to touch nearly every aspect of the clean energy industry. Are there areas that are particularly exciting to you? Absolutely. There are a lot of exciting pieces of this bill. One element that we're particularly excited about and want to continue to watch are the provisions that relate to electric transportation. So transportation has been a, a challenge that's been difficult to overcome. We've been making progress on renewable electricity, but emissions from ground transportation have continued to rise. So we're excited to see finally some progress and an acceleration of, of changes that are already underway in the transportation sector. How specifically might it facilitate a cleaner transportation sector? Yeah, so one of the major goals of the bill appears to be making electric vehicles more affordable. So it expands the cash incentives for buyers of electric vehicles. You know, that's something that has has been around for a while. There's been a federal tax credit, but there were limits on that and a cap on how many EVs were eligible for that tax credit. So this expands that cash incentive for buyers by eliminating the cap on how many cars from each manufacturer are eligible for the $7,500 tax credit. Currently, the way that the tax credit works is that it's phased out after a particular manufacturer sells 200,000 cars or more. So essentially, those that have led the way on electric transportation were no longer eligible for the tax credit. So great to see that that cap has been eliminated. And I understand that there are incentives in this bill as well to encourage companies to build solar panels. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So the, the bill also expands the tax credit for renewable energy. And there's also a push, in addition to using these carrots really through tax breaks and other incentives, there's also a push to spur domestic manufacturing. So you see elements of this throughout the bill, really encouraging manufacturers renewable energy, but then also electric transportation to use materials and components that are manufactured in North America. So really looking, you know, not only at ways to address the climate crisis, but also thinking about the future in, in green jobs and creating those industries here in the United States locally. And how does the bill target emissions? 
Yeah, so the bill really relies on this concept of carrots rather than sticks. So rather than taking an approach of kind of setting requirements and and limits and constraints, it's really offering these tax breaks and other incentives to try to encourage business you know, to reduce emissions. And then there's a financial upside for that. And then also for individual consumers. I mentioned the the tax credit available and expanded for the purchase of electric vehicles. And one of the ways, you know, kind of taking taking that even a step further and thinking about how to further expand emissions, we were really excited to see that the tax credit for electric vehicles now extends to, to used electric vehicles. We think that this element is really important because purchasing a new car is financially out of reach for for so many individuals. So by offering the tax credit for used electric vehicles, that's a step in really expanding access to electric vehicles and encouraging more people to make that switch and just making it more affordable for people to do that. And, you know, through these these types of carrots and these incentives, that's really the approach at reducing emissions economy-wide. I want to return to that idea of access. Are there other ways that you see this bill trying to expand access either by creating infrastructure in clean energy in rural communities or by instituting protections for people who are disproportionately impacted by climate change? Yeah, it's it's wonderful to see some elements in consideration for environmental justice in the bill, so recognizing that certain communities have historically been exposed to, you know, harmful pollutants and will continue to to be on the front lines of, of climate impact. So, you know, actually thinking about those communities and structuring policy to address their concerns. We also were pleased to to read more in this bill about a green bank. So that's something that we have locally through the GEMS program. So it's essentially financing for you know, increasing access to renewable energy for low and moderate income residents. It's often easier for those in higher income brackets to be able to install rooftop solar or install an EV charging station. But those options are less accessible to low and moderate income families. So by setting up this idea of this national green bank, again, expanding access to people that have been left out of the the climate and clean energy conversation. When you were to envision your ideal spending package on climate change legislation or on energy infrastructure, how closely does this proposed bill approximate it? Oh, what a fantastic question. (laughs) You know, this is tricky business, and there were also concessions in the bill, you know, for the fossil fuel industry, and it really, you know, took a lot of compromise, um, you know, to get to this point. It's a step in the right direction, and, and you know, a, a couple weeks ago, uh, we we couldn't, we didn't imagine that we would be working with a, a bill um, like this. So it's, it's great to see that forward progress, but we still, we still have a, a a long way to go. There's still, you know, more money that needs to be invested in this transition to to clean energy, um, and also, you know, m- more financing options for low and moderate income families. When it comes to climate change, what can Hawaii achieve without a parallel federal effort? What can we do by ourselves? Hawaii has has demonstrated that that states really play a powerful role in accelerating uh, the transition off of fossil fuels. Hawaii has been able to to set some pretty game changing. Um, policy agendas on climate solutions in absence of of federal leadership on this issue. We set the nation's first 100% renewable energy goal, um, and we're making good progress on that. And that's a goal that inspired other states across the country um, to set similar targets and just, you know, elevated the conversation about what's possible. Uh, So as lawmaking at the federal level continues to be tricky, um, you know, there's certainly a a win with the progress that's been made on this particular climate bill. Um, But there are, you know, more tough conversations and and probably more difficulties at the federal level. So we we still see a powerful role for states to move forward um, on on many of these efforts and, and being really clear about where we want to head as a state and then also making sure that we have the right 
policy framework in place to actually achieve our ambitious climate goals. Mm. Is there is there one way that you could, or one particular aspect of this bill that you think will really make a difference here at home? Certainly the provisions related to electric vehicles. In Hawaii, we're a very car-dependent state. Um, we, we drive a lot. Uh, and transportation and emissions coming from transportation has been um, a nut that we haven't been able to crack. So by providing these additional financial incentives and, and expanding access to electric vehicles for more residents, uh, we think this is really going to make uh, make a difference and really help us accelerate our transportation goals locally, um, especially because the auto industry, um, you know, that's not an industry that's kind of born in Hawaii. Um, we're, we're kind of at the whims of what's happening um, outside of our shores. So we think that this will go a long way um, in helping Hawaii residents access more clean transportation options. Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Is there anything else that you would like to add about this bill? Just that it's a a reason for hope. Um, The climate challenge can be a a daunting issue to work on, but -hmm. there are many smart, incredible people, um, you know, working on this issue day in, day, and this bill offers some hope that that we can collectively work together and address this crisis. That was Melissa Miyashiro, Executive Director of the Blue Planet Foundation, talking to us about a proposed climate deal that Democrats are trying to pass through the U.S. Senate. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he expects the bill to go to a floor vote this week. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we revisit Hawaiian immersion programs in our public schools. Got an opinion about the election process? Share your comments or questions. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.